I also think it's dangerous to think you have to excel at everything. You don't. You can't. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Since it's summer, and maybe you have a squidge more time in your schedule to listen to podcasts, I wanted to share one that you might want to check out, a great podcast about parenting and parenting culture called Spawned. It's hosted by the fabulous Kristen Chase and Liz Gumbinner from Cool Mom Picks. And Spawn's vibe is like chatting with your best friend over a cup of coffee, but with helpful takeaways and mostly non-judgmental advice. Kristen and Liz cover everything with their fabulous guests from how to encourage young readers with LeVar Burton to a recent episode I heard with Evangeline Lilly talking about her new children's book. I guess that's what she does when she's not being the wasp on the big screen. Plus, they have lots of amazing parenting authors, organizational experts, and just plain awesome people. You can check out the Spawned podcast wherever you catch your podcasts and learn more about all of their work at coolmompics.com or on social media at coolmompics. Hey, you guys, it's me, Nancy Davis Coe the gal who went from having the easiest name in the world to spell, Nancy Davis, to marrying into one that confounds everyone. Is it K-O-H? Is it K-O? Is it really only three letters? K-H-O? Is that all? How three tiny letters could confound so many people is beyond me, but the alternative was sticking with Nancy Reagan's maiden name and having that conversation for the rest of my life, so you'll understand why I stuck with saying, no, it's not, no, 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 it's not C-O-E, no, it's not K-O-A, no, it's K-H-O. It's all right. Speaking of the family into which I married, I am thrilled to share my conversation today with transnational writer Shu Si. That's spelled X-U-X-I. Shu Si is the author of 14 books, five novels, eight collections of short fiction and essays, one memoir, and is also editor of four anthologies of Hong Kong writing in English. Her newest book is This Fish is Foul, Essays of Bean, and that's from the American Live series at University of Nebraska Press, came out earlier this year. She's faculty co-director of the International MFA in Creative Writing and Literary Translation at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. For 18 years, Shusi had a parallel career in international business and held marketing and management positions in Asia and the U.S. with organizations like the Asian Wall Street Journal and Leo Burnett Advertising. An Indo-Chinese-American diehard transnational, she previously inhabited the flight path connecting New York, Hong Kong, and the South Island of New Zealand. These days, Shusi splits her life unevenly between the state of New York and the rest of the world. Shusi is also my cousin by marriage. Her father and my father-in-law were cousins who grew up together in Indonesia. And, you know, I had a piece over at midlifemixtape.com last week about ways you learn about the stories behind your family history. And I have to say, Shusi is one of my favorite storytellers when it comes to learning more about my husband's family history. So pull up a chair and hang out with Shusi and me for the next little while. So welcome to the podcast, Shusi. How are you? It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. I don't know if you know that the first question we always ask on the Midlife Mixtape podcast is, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? And I'm guessing you have a really interesting answer that nobody else has had on the show so far. Probably, because I had to think hard there. And I have to say, I think the first concert was when I was about 10 or 11, and I went to hear Otto Rubinstein play. Ah, 
because um, what I do know and do remember very clearly is that my piano teacher, who was a nun at my school, had us play for him in a kind of master class. I lasted all of two seconds, but my talented <laughs> classmate lasted a lot longer. But that's when I knew I was never going to be a concert pianist. So I th- what was it like a piano war of attrition? They yeah, they, they knocked you out yeah. after two seconds. <laughs> so the first real concert that I can remember was in college, and it was Chuck Berry. Oh, how cool! It was in college in the states. Here, yes, in Plattsburgh State. Talk about a, a cultural experience for you. Yeah, because actually at the time, it, it, somebody took me there. It was on a date, you know. He said, "Do you want to go to this concert with Chuck Berry?" And I thought, okay. And I thought, I wonder who Chuck. Berry because I was not much of either a pop you know music kind of person I knew some bands and things because I had all these albums growing up you knew things I did know a few things but I didn't know you know we didn't have concerts in Hong Kong when I was growing up we didn't really start having people tour till the 70s well you I mean your background in classical music comes through very clearly in the book it's a way that you bonded with your your parents with your siblings Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize you were a performer yourself until I read it I didn't know you sang yeah I, I played piano until the royal schools of music exams level up to grade five which is not that high you have to go through to get grade eight to say you can actually teach or something, you know. And of course, your brother became a composer, so. Yes, and he studied music. The Chuck Berry experience is a good, you know, welcome to America. Here's Chuck Berry. (laughs) (laughs) It really was kind of interesting, yeah. Well, listen, on this show, we talk about midlife mostly as it relates to aging, obviously. Uh, But there are a lot of ways to be in midlife. You can be in the middle in terms of cultures, in terms of languages, of career paths that are pulling you in different and maybe opposite directions. And in your latest book, This Fish is Foul, which is an essay collection, you touch on so many of those, including the midlife piece of it too, the aging piece of it. So I want to start by unpacking your views around being essentially a citizen of the world at a time when people keep trying to put national identities into boxes. And you've held, what, nine passports? (laughs) Yeah, but they were, it's really only Indonesian and American and the world passport, which not much of the world recognizes, but I did have one when I was 16. I I don't have it anymore, which I'm really sorry I didn't keep it. I want to talk more about that world government, but just for listeners who haven't read your book yet, can you give a really quick synopsis of your background and how you came to identify with so many different nationalities? Well, I grew up in Hong Kong. I was born and raised there, but my parents came from Indonesia. And we are what we call the Huachiao or Wakyu, the overseas Chinese. That's what my parents were. Um, so they ended up in Hong Kong after the war and had us. So I grew up as an Indonesian citizen in a Chinese world. And even though I was ethnically part Chinese, uh, my father is also part Indonesian, so we do have some Indonesian blood. The cultural life I had at home in Hong Kong was more Indonesian than it was Chinese. But mm-hmm. Hong Kong was 98% Cantonese, so I learned Cantonese. Um, I spoke that as, a, as my other language. And my parents did not teach me Indonesian, but taught me English because it was a British colony. So I grew up with this kind of multiple sense of how to be in the world, even as a child. And because my father's work was in mining, he was um, like a broker for mines in Indonesia that had manganese, and he would sell these lots to the Japanese. So we had 
Japanese visitors in our home, Indonesian visitors in our home. He was working with some uh, a British guy who was one of his business associates, and there were Portuguese, and、um, later he had Filipino. So we just had this multinational kind of world. So to me, the world was kind of mixed up, and I I didn't think in terms of national boundaries. To me, it was kind of like, well, I got to leave Hong Kong because it's too Chinese here. Right. <laughs> I got to go somewhere where they speak English. You know, since English was really more the language that. Uh, my family spoke in English at home, even though we could all speak Chinese, and we would inter we would code switch, as they call it. We would intersperse it with Chinese, and we knew some Indonesian words,、um, so we used that too. But it was a very mixed up sense of being.、Um, but because it was a British colony, it was English was sort of an elite language in Hong Kong, right? And I was at the time very proud to be an English speaker.、Um, I have to say that. As I got older, I sort of thought, you know, that was kind of screwy. I wish I had been more fluent in Chinese as well and learned Indonesian too.、Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, it's the way I grew up. It's the way a lot of people who were in the colonies kind of did. I, I have Singaporean cousins who are similar that way too. Right. And then you came to the states for college. You lived with my husband's family. I used to visit them as I was in the dorms. Oh, that's right. Only that's like twenty、right. miles away. Right. And that was fun because it was actually my uncle Tong who told my dad about Plattsburgh State, and I was like, "Where? You, know, <laughs> you want me to apply to where?" Which sometimes is still the reaction if you mention Plattsburgh State. Yeah, it's in the little no corner of the ed- right、yeah. in the corner of upstate New York, right next to the Adirondacks. Right, and it, it's you know it's a beautiful part of the country,、mm. and it's where I live now, which is kind of ironic. But I actually circle back and decide. Decided to make my home in my American home, ultimately in the part of the country that I first came to. Thank you for that, because I think we have to set the context for how many different identities and different sort of facets there are to your self identity. And you write about this in the book. And in a lot of cases, you were made to feel not Chinese enough for Hong Kong, not British enough for Hong Kong. It feels to me like you were often in situations where. You were not given the chance to express the fullness of your identity, just because you do have this kind of your your publishing company is called Mongrel for a reason, right? I mean,、mm-hmm. and I just think it's interesting, like the whole subject of how we. It's less and less common for somebody to stay in the place they were born. It is more common for interracial marriage and you know、uh, inter interreligious marriage. So you're kind of on the leading edge in terms of where a lot of people are going to end up, and, and having to reconcile all these different aspects of their personality. Do you see that? I mean, does that does that kind of resonate with you? Absolutely. In fact, I sort of think now I look and I see people in Hong Kong and America and Europe and Asia who actually are a lot more like me, because you know people do marry across race. Culture, religion, countries—it's much more common in a world where travel is a lot cheaper, where the internet has made it easy for us to connect around the world, where social media has created networks that would never have happened before. I mean, when I first came to America, I—I I didn't speak to my parents on the phone. I was here for three years, finishing my bachelor's. I, I only talked to them on the phone twice in the entire time. In three years, yes, because it was、wow. impossible to make a long distance call. It was、right. a really expensive, 
difficult thing. You had to have an operator place the call and all that. Even domestic inter- uh, long distance calls were not that easy here at right. the time. Certainly not from the dorms, you know. Sure. So what have you learned about being in the middle of that way? I mean, do you feel like you take on the characteristics of the place you are geographically or are all those pieces present in you and you kind of carry that grounding with you? I'm curious to know how you stay centered as you travel through the world. You know, the the, the world government passport, sadly, no longer <laughs> is needed. This was something, and can you explain that really quickly? Because I, I, I had no idea yes, about that. Yes, you never heard of it. Gary mm. Davis, he was... Um, no relation. He, no no relation, yes. <laughs> he um, kind of exiled himself in Paris and started the world government. He was well, if you're going to exile American. yourself, that's not a bad place yeah, to that's go. That's not a bad place, yeah. Mm-mm. And he started the world government, but he believed that we should be able to cross borders Easily that, you know, passports should not be something that nations issue, but that the world issues. But it's mm-hmm. not, of course, and national identity and nation states are still very much the way the world is organized. But as we see in the EU, as we see even in ASEAN, for example, you see examples of what he was talking about, you know, and he was just very forward thinking, but he, he gave up his American passport to do that, you know? So I had heard about him. I don't know how I came across him. And you were a teenager when you, when you heard about it. 13, 14. And I wrote to him because of course, you know, you could only write for anything. So I wrote away to him and this huge package came back to me, which had the world passport information and the passport book, you know, but I realized that you could only, that only about five countries in the world actually you to use it to go into them you know you still need a visa for everywhere else um but i was interested in it because the concept of it i found truly remarkable and it was what i thought the world should be like so um that's how it kind of happened to me (laughs) so how do you stay rooted in that sense i mean with all the the variety of uh, influences that you bring to the table there were a few things one there's language i speak english as a primary language which is very much the global lingua franca at the moment it may change one day chinese could be that once french was that but I understand that that affords me a certain privilege and advantage mm-hmm. because much of the world will conduct, you know, I used to have a, a business career and certainly much of the world conducts it in English, no matter where they are. So that linguistically, that's one thing that roots me because I'm able to use the English language in ways that are useful. By the same token, the Chinese language has a very far reach. And, and because I look Chinese enough, although sometimes I get mistaken for other Asian identities, I can speak to a Chinese diaspora around the world and in China uh, just by virtue of looking the way I do. So these are Mm -hmm. things that I understand are, you know, it's just in me. You know, I speak English, I look Chinese, you know, and I can also speak Chinese. So this this is an interesting combination to to carry with you. And I think the other thing that has really allowed me to be anywhere in the world is that by the time I was in my, I would say mid-20s, I was pretty clear that I was a writer. I knew Mm -hmm. that I was going to write. You know, I hadn't published a whole lot yet at that point, but it was kind of like, this is the identity that I understand. And it became, by the time I was in my 30s, it was very clearly my identity. It didn't matter what other job I had or anything else. I knew that this would take me everywhere. And so having certain things that you feel are part of who you are and that you you never have to compromise those, you don't have to make excuses for that, was very, very helpful. There's a Confucian analect. Um, you know, at 15, I set my heart at, on learning 
At 30, I took my stand. So at 30, according to Confucius, a, a gentleman, this, of course, it was all male back then. Sure. W- women weren't doing anything. Yeah, no. we didn't count. No. We just didn't count, yeah. Um, but a, a man understands, or a person understands, um, that they have to make a mark on the world, and this is the way they will do it. And I always took that kind of to heart, because by, by the time I was 30, I kind of knew how I wanted to make my mark on the world. And so that's the thing that roots me. You know, the, so because you can go to all kinds of places and be everywhere, and, you know, you can very easily be thrown off your center. But um, if you have a sense of who you are at the center, then that's quite important. And that, that those were the three things. I mean, sort of language, the way I look, you know, ethnically, the, the way that I present myself to the world, I am a writer. I like the idea of that, that if, by the time you're 30, you really are starting to understand what your value is, what mm-hmm. what resonates with you. And if you keep that front and center, it'll help you negotiate through almost anything. Pretty much. Yeah. Which leads me to what was a really hard time for you. And you, you talk about this in the book as a state of suspended time. So yes. you <laughs> had reached a certain point, you had uh, moved away from the writing or from the corporate career, you were making a living as a, you know, as a writing teacher and as a writer. And then your mom uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and it got pretty bad pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And you moved to Hong Kong. You had been living in the States with, with Bill, the lovely Bill. Yes, um, and right. you basically had to put your life on hold well, I, I say had to, but I recognize as the mother, as the as the mother, boy, that's going to come up again later. As the daughter of a person with dementia, um, you it's it's had it's both an obligation and a privilege. But you moved to Hong Kong to care for your mom, and you were in this state of suspended time for how many years? About seven years. So seven years you were caring for your mom. Yeah. I had a full-time job uh, for six years. And the seventh year was just kind of after she had died, closing up the home and sorting out stuff and things like that. And actually prior to those seven years, I was already bouncing back and forth quite a lot and spending right. Initially, I would go for like maybe three weeks, and then it became a month, and then it became six weeks, and then right. I took over a room in her home, you know, and all the rest of it. So I knew it was just sort of inevitable. And then the job offer that came up was kind of fortuitous because I was like, hey, will you come and start this MFA program in Masters of Fine Arts, in case you don't know what it, that is? A Master of Fine Arts in Creative Friday. And it was the first. Asia-wide one because it was a low-residency one. Do you want to describe what low-residency means? They don't live necessarily in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. it's sort of like an executive MBA where you come in for short courses and then you go away and you do your work by distance, you know, sort of. It's almost like correspondence school, except that you do have to come to whatever is the campus, you know, and, and take classes or workshops. We have them. And it's it's an American model that I had taught in for about 10 years at the time when I first started it in Hong Kong um, at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And um, that's I, I took that model and, and, and reinvented it for, for Asia, mm-hmm. which was very exciting. It was the first international MFA ever. So I wondered if there's, I mean, so many of us are in either a caregiving position for aging parents or will be at some point. And I wonder if you can talk about 
things that helped you get through that was a difficult time. And you talk, you don't have um, kids, but you talk about moving into the maternal role for your mother during that time too, which I think is a pretty universal thing. And I just wondered if there's anything that you learned that you wish you'd known ahead of time that you can pass on to people who are listening, who may find themselves in a similar role. Well, you know, it has a lot to do too with your particular relationship with that parent or elder person that you have to care for. My mother and I do not get along. (laughs) We never did. I was probably the one that she clashed with the most. Um, I wasn't always that way as a as a young girl I mean when I was like sort of 11 and under I was like the good girl and then I became then you saw Chuck Berry and it all went to hell yeah it yeah. all fell apart <laughs> actually I, I, I like the doors and Aretha Franklin and that was the beginning <laughs> of the end you know and I, and then my mother was very Catholic and I sort of left the Catholic Church that doesn't help so I mean having had a, a, a difficult relationship let's say through much of my adult life Part of, and I think for a lot of women, you know, the mother daughter relationship is very central. So if you have a very good one, that's one thing. Um, But one thing I knew was that I still love my mother. I don't care how much we clash. I still love her. And I had to draw on, and this is how, in writing the book, actually, that really helped me because I was writing it almost in real time, not entirely, because I had started it before. I actually went back, but I was sort of writing that section of the book about mom and me in somewhat real time. And the thing I began to understand is that my mother is becoming like a child. She doesn't remember. She At some point, she'll have no idea who I am. So while she still knew who I was, I thought, let me try to communicate with her the best I can. And the biggest thing I had to learn was to let go of the anger, the hurt, the, you know, the recriminations that if my mother was still mentally fine, I'd probably still be arguing with her about. So that was a really good thing. I you know, with a parent, there's always emotional issues, you know, and I had to put aside that and say, look, it's not about me anymore. It's about her. She needs the care. It's like if, you know, like when you're around, I, I don't have kids. So I'm around babies. I'm not the best mom around babies because I've never had to deal with one. But when you have a baby or a young child in your vicinity, I immediately become very protective. And I understood that that was what I had to do. That idea that you should care for somebody who is weaker than you, who is less fortunate than you, who is, you know, hurt or, you know, vulnerable. I think that's that's human. That's what being a good human being is, you know. Right. And so I had to dig in and say, you know, you got to stop being the rebel daughter and start becoming just the responsible adult here because somebody has to do it. But it's so hard because it's it's like saying goodbye. You're saying goodbye, but the person's still there right in front of you. And yet it's this protracted goodbye. I think it's, I feel Very protracted, a lot yeah. of um, empathy yeah. for people who go through it because it's, it's so hard. I think also if you are dealing with somebody who has dementia or Alzheimer's or, or, you know, any of those other diseases that are debilitating, whether they're physical or mental, one good thing to do is to research that disease. I did. I read up on Alzheimer's. I started to learn more about it. I, I, I donated money to the Alzheimer's Association. Association, I try to keep up with some of the research I could find because then you begin to understand a bit more about the condition. And in understanding how other people have dealt with it, you 
learn something. I found the Alzheimer's Association's newsletters were quite helpful, actually, you know. It is useful to to look for the support system that's there. And then I would talk to friends who also, you know, my friends, my class, former classmates were all my age, and many of them had similar issues too. So we talk among ourselves, and that helped, yeah. you know. I think it's important not to get isolated and to remember there are people going through the same thing. Yeah, you, I think the thing you yeah. have to come to terms with, you know, you're not alone in this. You think at the time that it's like when you're a teenager, when you first sort of hit puberty, you think that the whole world is out to get you, you know, and and you think that you're experiencing something that nobody has ever experienced before. And of course, that's not true. You know, the world has been experiencing this for a while. So reach out and look for that. I find that so community is so important. Community is everything, right. you know. And then you got to have your friends that you can go and get drunk with and get and drunk bitch, with, right? You know? <laughs> that helps, you know. So my friend Jenny, who appears in my book quite a lot, is still my best drinking buddy in Hong Kong. You know, so. And now, you know, sadly, Aunt Kathleen passed away, but that meant mm-hmm. that your suspended time is past, and now you can focus yeah. on your own work. And and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you've reunited, you've come back to the states, you're reunited with Bill. Yeah, we got married. That was you got married finally on our twenty. <laughs> first year together well you you wanted to make sure it was going to take you know yeah yeah (laughs) you you know I tell you one of the big support systems I had was Bill I mean we had a long distance relationship and a a lot of other guys really long distance very and would not have had the patience he had but he's a very patient man and I think that's one of the reasons I'm still with him (laughs) so I know you're working on a new low residency MFA that Mm -hmm. has some some echoes of what you did when you were in Hong Kong Oh, it's actually more exciting than the old one because it's international. So we, instead of having all the residencies in, say, Vermont College, we have them around the world. And we actually go to different countries every semester. But the good thing here is I have a co-director. Um, having a, a co-director to bounce things off is so wonderful. You know, we're now, we've just, we're coming to the end of our first academic year and we're going into the second. So it's still new and very young, but very exciting. And it's called the International MFA in Creative Writing and Literary Translation. And it's at Vermont College. Where is that in Vermont? It's in Montpelier, Vermont. So it's Vermont College of Fine Arts. So the first semester, we went to Iceland, to Reykjavik. And then we did Hong Kong after that. And next semester, we're we're Mm -hmm. going to Canada, to Banff in Canada. And then after that, to Lisbon. And then following that, it'll be um, in, I think we're going to Istanbul and then Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. So you need your world government passport. That, that would make things so much easier. I wanted to continue to have an international life. So this is sort of how I do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> That's certainly a midlife lesson. Like you have the basic, mm-hmm. the basic goals, the basic outlines, but you have to keep your knees flexed and see how it comes to you, yeah. how you make that, that goal happen. And I'm taking a page from millennial generation because, of course, they're now, I kind of feel a little sorry for millennials because they they seem to be thrust into kind of a gig economy. But I've been doing the gig economy now for quite a while. And I think that there are ways to do it. We used to call it freelance. You <laughs> right. know? Um, but there, there are ways to do it where you retain flexibility. But the question is, can you make a living at it? And that's the side that I think isn't always terribly fair because I know a lot of young people now have to go and be interns for nothing, you know? And I, I don't actually think that's right. I think companies and institutions and organizations ought to pay interns because they're doing work after all. Right. You know, I, I have a problem with the way 
it's sort of gone. But by the same token, the old models like tenure at universities, um, you know, jobs for life, these are not realistic in a world where technology is changing what work means um, on a almost daily basis, it feels like. Now. Well, the flexibility is nice, but the money has to come with it. That's just the... The money has to come with it. And I think that that's what corporate America really needs to rethink its capitalist model. I really yeah. do. There has to be some of the social, what we what we would call social welfare or socialist kind of um, advantages that come with it so that you know, women and men as well can have a place for childcare, medical care, all these things that, you know, contribute to being human. <laughs> you know, it should be, education should be part of it. I mean, we shouldn't, our, our young people should not be paying $85,000 a year just to get a bachelor's degree, which is what they are paying these days. Amen to that, says the woman with two kids in college next year. Yeah. So since I have you on the phone at, at this particular point in time, you've written extensively about the changes in Hong Kong. And the quick story is that Hong Kong was a British colony. We were a colony. A British colony through 1997, at which point it was turned over to China on a pre-negotiated basis. It was one country, two system, but we had a, a rule of law. We had freedom of the press. Uh, we do not censor, you know, the internet in, in Hong Kong. And it, it had a, a, a kind of social and cultural system that was much more like, say, the first world, like Europe or America. So that's how we were. We were a very cosmopolitan city and still are. And the one country, two systems allowed us to be what they call a special administrative region. Unfortunately, that has changed rather more quickly than people realize. Mm -hmm. The problem is, of course, China has sovereignty over Hong Kong, and that's undeniable. But there is an independence movement in Hong Kong, which is, of course, anathema to China. Two of these political activists have recently sought asylum in Germany and gotten it. And that might be the only way Hong Kong will have any kind of independence movement. They have to create a government in exile. <laughs> That's about it, you know. I've been following the news about the latest protests around yes. this question of extradition. Extradition law. So this is... Extradition law is a really clunky, clumsy situation of trying to create policy out of one situation. There was a case or is a case of a Hong Kong guy. They were trying to get him extradited to Taiwan or not. And, and Hong Kong doesn't have extradition agreements with Taiwan and other, certain other countries. It does not either. But, you know, Hong Kong, because it's not a nation state, doesn't really negotiate its own foreign affairs, if you like. That's really China's job. So why the government decided that they should rapidly and swiftly and in such a hurry try to ram this piece of legislation through is beyond me. You know, Carrie Lam, who's being asked to step down now, the, the, the CEO, I mean, she's not the worst CEO we could have had. We have one who's a former one who's in jail, another one who was a pain in the ass. You know? So I don't know that she was any worse than any of them. In fact, she's better than some. But uh, she's now in a crisis situation because she tried to push this through. Two million of the seven million residents yes. of Hong Kong were on the streets of last weekend, which That's is right. insane. Right. It is totally insane. And the, the uh, news I've been getting from friends of mine who are there, you know, who've gone out to protest and everything. This is a protest that does have to happen. The idea that somebody in Hong Kong 
and it doesn't it, it doesn't matter what nationality they are who might be extradited to China to be tried there is just horrifying to most Hong Kong people. Right. So this is the problem that we currently have there. Now, she has suspended that piece of legislation and she's backed off. At last I heard, she's still not willing to step down. They're asking her to resign the protesters right now. So we'll see what happens. It's a very dramatic and historical time in Hong mm-hmm. Kong and a, a kind of turning point, I think. What happens after this will be quite interesting. All right. So, Shusi, one final question. Actually, I'm going to mention first, if you guys are interested in learning more about Shusi's book, you can go to her website, shusiwriter.com. That's X-U-X-I-W-R-I-T-E-R.com. And of course, I will link to that with the show notes. But her latest book is This Fish is Foul, but she's got fiction, nonfiction. She's a wonderful writer, so I hope you'll check her out. My question to you is, what one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I think I would have told myself not to be in such a hurry to do so much of what I did. I was always in a hurry. I finished four years of college in three. By the time I was 20, I was in my first marriage. I'm now in my third, you know. I think there were many things. I was hungry for experience. I had a a job at an airline, so I got to travel, and I was greedy for that travel, and I just did as much of it as I could. And on the one hand, I don't regret having traveled so much. On the other hand, I think I would have slowed down a bit, that I didn't have to meet everyone, do everything, rush through my life in such a hurry. And I think I would have been better off for it. I think being too much of an A-type is a mistake because you don't have to do everything. I, I watch young people now, especially uh, sort of high school and middle school kids who have so many mm-hmm. activities lined up. I was like that myself with a, in a time before that was necessary. I was in this club, that club, this newspaper thing, that, uh, you know, I was doing so many things. And as a result, I think I didn't learn what was the most important for me. And I didn't focus enough on that and just concentrate on that and let some things go. I also think it's dangerous to think you have to excel at everything. You don't. You can't. Well, great advice. Wonderful to catch up with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Nancy. I have to share one family story involving Shusi. So before I was a writer, I did international product management for a software company, and I had the chance to go to Hong Kong for work a few times. And the meetings were fine. I loved being in Hong Kong. But what was awesome was that as soon as I got back to my hotel room when my workday was done, I'd call Shusi and say, okay, I'm ready. And 15 minutes later, she'd pull up in a clown car crammed with a bunch of my father-in-law's cousins who were all guys in their 70s. And we'd head out for the best meals I've eaten in Asia and lots of stories about my father-in-law as a kid in Java. And it was heaven. So keep an eye on those Hong Kong news reports. It's a really interesting and pivotal time. And there's so many layers to it. And in fact, right after I interviewed her, I ran across an article in Quartz magazine about why Cantonese is a perfect language with which to satirize the Chinese government. And I'll include a link to that story in the show notes. I am a bit of a foreign language nerd, but hey, you know what? They say you can stave off the gremlins of aging by learning something new every day. So maybe the struggle for self-determination in Hong Kong is today's brick in the wall. Check out the article. Try to understand why the Cantonese and the Mandarin have two different weights to them. I didn't know anything about that. The other thing, I guess, related to this is I just found out this week that we've sold the rights to my book 
to the Taiwanese market. And I want to go ahead and thank my father-in-law for giving me the name KHO, because I'm sure that helped. In 2020, you'll be able to buy the Thank You Project in Taiwan. How fantastic. Let me know what you think of today's episode at dj at midlifemixtape.com or reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Midlife Mixtape. And thanks to all of you who do. I really love hearing from you. I try to respond to everybody. I think I do. If I've missed you, let me know. But I do try to get back to you because I love hearing from you guys. All right, you guys, that's it for me. I hope you have a wonderful week. Happy Fourth of July. I wanna be, I wanna be free by whatever